Our Old Testament reading is from Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20, and you can find that on page 790 in your Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those who, of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, I will make you renowned in praise among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And our New Testament reading is in Revelation 2, 1 through 4, and 22 through 27, which is on page 1041 in your Pew Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you aren't there already, please turn to Zephaniah 3, from where Emmy read earlier. Before we go to the Word, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we come before you as your people who are in need. We're in need of reviving. Lord, would you revive us this morning through your word? Lord, as any preacher should say this Lord's Day morning, it is you who brings life. It is you who rejuvenates us. It is you who sanctifies us through your word and sacrament. Lord, give us your grace this morning. Lord, we come this morning and we lift up those who are needy. Lord, we 
continue to pray for our brother, Doug Hay, who's returned from the hospital. Lord, please bless him. Please give him good health. Please sustain him. Lord, we pray for Linda Horde, Shannon Key's mother, as she's being diagnosed with cancer. Lord, be near to her. Remove this cancer from her because you are willing. Lord, may the church love her as you have loved your bride. Lord, we lift up our brother Brandon Sheridan. Lord, care for him. Give him strength and health. May the doctors and nurses that cared for her, may they have seen everything that they needed to see. And we thank you for sparing his life. Lord, we are also thankful that you spared us this past weekend in these terrible storms. We pray for those who are affected. We pray for the massive loss for those who lost loved ones. We ask you to draw near to them. Give them a peace that passes all understanding. Give them comfort to know that you are still ruling and reigning and you will come again soon. Lord, we pray for our country. Lord, we pray for our president that you might shower down wisdom and insight. That you will put around him godly men and women that will teach the truthfulness of your word. What true justice and righteousness looks like. Lord, we pray for Mark and Liz Scheibe. Lord, comfort their family. May they preach your gospel with great hope and joy and anticipation. May they love those who they tend to. Keep their family from the evil one. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. When I was in seminary, I was part of a small group called the Theological Fellowship. It was a really nerdy group. We were all students in seminary. We were all overwhelmed with the amount of reading that we had to do every day, with the amount of writing we had to do, and yet that wasn't enough. We needed more. And so we struggled through every semester. We read through the Didache. The next semester we read about the Eastern Orthodox understanding of the Lord's Supper. And then my th the third and the last semester I could continue to be that nerdy, we read through the Apostolic Fathers. And if you don't know of the Apostolic Fathers by Lightfoot, there's a certain version you can get where the English is on the left and it's actually written in the Greek on the right. 
And because I'm not really great with languages, I just read the English. But there were those in this group that translated the Greek into the English because they didn't have anything else to do, right? We were nerdy. Well, every year this group hosted a Bantam lecture. where It was a conference where students, professors from our seminary and other seminaries and other theological schools in St. Louis could come and could pre- present something that they had been working on. Every conference had a plenary speaker. One year, D.A. Carson came and presented a thesis that he had been working on. And then after that, we would break up in 10 to 15 different groups, and people would present lesser papers. Well, one year, our president and vice president, who happened to be my neighbor, came to me and said, we're having a really hard time filling these breakout sessions. Do you have a paper that you could present? I said, no, I don't. And I didn't hear from them for a little while. And then two weeks before the conference, they came to me again. And they said, we just need somebody. Do you have something? And what I should have said was, I got nothing. But I didn't. I said, well, this last semester, I worked all semester on a particular paper on Paul's understanding of the word baptizo, baptism in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. This paper was only six pages long because it had a word count. It was 1,000 words plus or minus 10%. My paper was 1,100 words. Six pages long. At one point, it was 24 pages. And then I took it to the butcher and I started chopping it down. In six pages, there were 38 footnotes. My bibliography was two pages with a third page of works consulted that weren't referenced. And I had to present this paper before fellow students and other people. This was my biggest fear. What if they find out I have no idea what I'm talking about? And let me ask you this question. Have you ever been found out? Have you ever experienced complete transparency between somebody or a group of people and they see you as you really are? Has anyone seen you without the facade that you tiresomely try to cover yourself with? And have they seen you at the core of your being? You know, we all try to keep it together because we have this fear. If people really know, if they really find out, what happens if they reject me? For me, this paper didn't just represent my semester's worth of hard work. This paper represented me. If this paper would be rejected, I would have been Rejected. If this paper would have been criticized, I would be criticized. What if these people, my nerdy friends, found out that I was a fraud? Maybe they'd say, what's wrong with this guy? He clearly has no idea what he's talking about. So I'm a three on the Enneagram. 
This relates to my biggest fear. A three's biggest fear is having everything they've ever done laid out and someone cast a judgment upon them. You are worthless. Maybe you don't know this about me, but my love language from everyone except my wife is words of affirmation. But even still, to hear her approval of me revives my soul because I know I'm loved by someone who has seen me for who I am. So my biggest fear is to be critiqued, to be found out. And maybe this is one of your biggest fears. As we come to Zephaniah this morning, I wonder if any of you have ever read this book. I wonder if any of you would have been able to find it if the page number wasn't written on the bulletin. But Zephaniah is a minor prophet, not because his message is minor, but because his book is just shorter than the major prophets. I don't know if you knew that. The major prophets are the major prophets just because they're longer. But he was a prophet that preached the word of God to the southern kingdom of Judah prior to the exile of Babylon. So if you're thinking, where does this relate with Ezra? Ezra, the people are returning from the exile of Babylon. So Zephaniah is preaching to a people before they're deported. And he's come to them, and we come to our passage, and he's telling Zion, the city of God, the city of David, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart. Zephaniah is giving the people a reason to sing. And he shows them, he's telling them of the great future that they will have in this city. Because God has promised them to bless them. He's describing to them the hope of the future to come. He's describing to them, as Robert Cunningham said just a few weeks ago, why they should be happy. Because God has found favor with them. Zephaniah is telling the people, this is why you should sing. But what's hard about Zephaniah is that is not what the whole book is about. This is just the very end. And if I were to summarize very succinctly what Zephaniah is about, is the rest of the book is actually about why the people shouldn't sing. So you have why people shouldn't sing, and then we're going to talk about why the people should sing. And why the people shouldn't sing is the book of Zephaniah is about God's great day of judgment. The day of the Lord. And I hope you've heard this before. We said it in our, in our call to worship. Zephaniah says it in verse 7 of chapter 1. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. This motif is rich throughout all the prophets. The day of the Lord is the day that God will judge the world for their sins. The day of the Lord is a great day of anticipation of God's judgment upon the world, including his own people. And as this judgment comes upon God's own people, we read in chapter 1, verse 12, they are the people who have become 
complacent. Complacent. If you look at the ESV footnote, it says the dregs. I don't know if you know what a dreg was, but in 2020, I've decided to become a more refined person and become a quite connoisseur of coffee. I looked up what's the best way to make homemade coffee. Is it the French press? Is it the Chemex? Is it the K-cup? I mean, let's be honest. Most of us just drink from the K-cup, but not me. I was too good for that in 2020. I wanted to know how to make the best cup of coffee, and so I found a French press. That's what I settled on. Judge me, whatever. That's what I, that's what I settled on. What I don't like about French press coffee is when you get to the bottom, there's the dredge, the settlement at the bottom. Maybe this happens in your hot chocolate. Maybe this happens in your wine, but the dredge is the sludge. It's the yucky stuff. It's what goes to the bottom because it has no more purpose. The dredge is a Hebrew euphemism for people feeling settled and secured, and they've just floated to the bottom of life. And this is how Zephaniah describes these people. They say in their hearts, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. These people have become apathetic to God. And as Kevin DeYoung calls them, these people are practical atheists. They're people who say, I believe in God, but I really don't believe he has anything to do with my day-to-day life. Complacency is ungodliness. And this is how Zephaniah describes the people of God, the people living in Jerusalem, in Zion. The people who have the priests and the kings, who have the temple where the presence of the Lord is among them, these people have become complacent. These are the people who say, why does it matter? Right? God's really not going to do anything about it. I mean, he's, he's already judged us in the wilderness. He's, he's not going to judge us again. Why should we worship in the temple? We're already saved. Why do I have to continue in that life? Why do I have to pray? God already knows what's going to happen. Why do what the Lord commands? It's not going to get me a better job. It's not going to get me a better looking girlfriend. It's not going to get my paychecks become any larger. And there's the other side. The Lord won't do any ill, right? God's a God of love. And we can believe God isn't going to do any ill towards us, but he will to the world, right? They're going to get it because they don't know God like we know God. They don't obey his word. They don't do any good. And God will bring judgment upon them. The day of the Lord is for the world. But that's not who Zephaniah is writing to. He does mention the world. The world will get 
what it deserves for its sins. But Zephaniah is speaking to the people of God because they are the dredge. Prayerlessness is ungodliness. Because prayerlessness is unbelief that God is still working today. Prayerlessness is a perfect picture of complacency. This is a practical atheism in our church. Complacency is saying, I'm not going to search biblical counseling because there's no hope for my marriage. We're just going to make it through until the kids get out and then everything will be okay. Complacency means we don't teach our children the word because how much they know the word doesn't depend on the job they're going to get in life. How much they know the word doesn't mean that they're going to find a wife or a husband or not. Complacency looks like God plus something else. And this is what Zephaniah says in verses 4 to 6. He said, they worship, they bow down to Yahweh and to the other gods. And it is to these people that God says, I will stretch out my hand. This same phrase is used in Exodus 3, speaking about Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And here God is using it to speak to his own people, to the dredge. If you believe that it's God and something else, you don't know who the covenant God is. This is the God and way of life. We believe in God and with whatever brings us immediate happiness. We believe in God and this one other thing that's just so important I can't do without. That one more thing from Amazon, that, that's it, right? It is those who believe in God, but believe that if their grandchildren don't live close, they will not make it in life. This is the dredge. And it settles into our hearts. And it makes us deny that the very essence of our faith is that is in the one God and there is no other. The dredge are God's people who believe that the God who created them is not enough to sustain. And do you know what the Lord will do on this great day to the dredge? Zephaniah tells us in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 1. Just listen, you don't need to look at it. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hasting fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. The day of wrath is the day 
a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and a battle cry against the fortified cities and against a lofty battlements. This is the day of the Lord. This is the reason that the people shouldn't sing. It's because the people have become the dredge. They have become like the people of the world. They have lost the fear of the Lord. And we must ask ourselves, do we fear the Lord? Do we fear the Lord that on this day he will judge us in his holy righteousness because we have become the dredge? Scripture is unequivocally clear. The day of the Lord is coming. We cannot redefine it. We can't Explain it away with niceties. It's easy to misunderstand or replace the idea, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the New Testament. Or it's easy to redefine what the, God, what the wrath of God really is. We hear a lot and we talk a lot about hell on earth, that God will simply just let us remain in our sin. But the day of the Lord is not just a simple act of God giving us to our sin. It's the day that the Lord will actually come and hunt those down who are in sin. Because sin has come into his world and he hates it. Because he is holy and awesome. And do you know that you are like the dregs? You will receive the Lord's punishment. This is Judah. They have had the Davidic king for almost four centuries. They live in Jerusalem, in Zion, where God has said that he will dwell among them forever. But Judah's problem is that she has become stubborn. Do you know anyone that's stubborn? She hasn't drawn near to the Lord. She doesn't seek the Lord. She doesn't come to the Lord in humility, and she doesn't wait upon the Lord. Israel has become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the message of Zephaniah. The day of the Lord is coming, and we all should be in fear because we have all failed. We have all been found out. We have a God that knows every little detail about our lives. Sometimes we like to explain away our failures. It's like SEC football games, right? Oh, I played Alabama this week. We lost, but 
you know, there was a moral victory. We didn't lose that bad. This is what we see with Adam and Eve, right? God came to Adam, said, why have you sinned? And Adam said, it was the woman that you gave me. That's why I sinned. God went to Eve, and Eve said the same thing. It was because of the serpent. And we do that same thing with our own sin. We contemplate it. We misplace it. We downplay it. And this is the point where you ask me, man, Tyler, this is Advent, right? This is the third day of Advent. We're supposed to be talking about the joy of the world. And yet we're talking about the day of the Lord. And this is what I say. It is the third day of Advent. And we have come to sing. But do you know why we sing? Do you know why the angels came and sang? Do you know why Mary sang? As we read this morning, do you know why Simeon sang? It's because in part the day of the Lord has already come and it fell on Jesus. The great day of darkness happened on the cross because when Christ was crucified, it became dark and the earth split apart. Our king came to save us, even though we were the dredge. You see, this book of judgment does not end in gloom. We come to this passage and we see, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult in your heart, because the day of the Lord has come and it fell upon Christ and not upon us, and we deserved it. Because of the cross of Christ, the judgment for our sins has already been carried out. We were rebellious. We were lost in our sin and shame. We were sons of darkness, fickle, stubborn, prideful. And when we couldn't see the Lord, he came to us. Emmanuel came to save us. This is why we sing. The Lord humbled himself and came to the cross. So on that day, we might not fall, but we might stand and sing with our heads high. Because Christ came to us and said, Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because the day of the Lord will not fall upon you. It has fallen upon me. If you are caught in any sin, may the power of God fill you and may you repent of that sin so that you do not become the dredge. If you are caught in sexual immorality, confess and repent. It is going to be hard. But the Lord is good and the Lord is faithful. If you find yourself with a loose tongue, with an unhealthy and unbiblical love of alcohol, if you find yourself living in the living a lie 
seek the Lord and draw near to him. For this is why we rejoice in the Lord. Because our king came to us and he saved us. Zephaniah is pointing the people to Jesus. So I was at this conference, right? And I presented this paper. My worst fear actually happened. I presented this paper. Baptizo in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. And when I got done, I sat there and I waited. Because we were supposed to talk about this, this just excellent paper that came straight from God's hand, right? Through me, of course, yeah. Verbal inspiration. But there was one person in the classroom I didn't recognize. He was an older gentleman. Not older. He was middle-aged. And he raised his hand and he asked a question. I came to find out that he had just written his doctoral thesis on Romans 6. Verses 5 through 8. So he was pretty familiar with Romans 6 verses 3 through 4. He tore my paper to pieces. I stood before them in good faith presenting this paper and I was found out. And I felt humiliated. But that paper was not my identity. That paper was not the last word and that paper was not the end of my story. Because we have a God who came to us in the form of a baby. And he was mighty to save. I was found out. But God still loved me because I am in Christ. That is why we sing. It's because the Messiah has come. Is this how you see yourself? Is this how you see the God that you love and adore? That he has found you out and he still loves you. Because that's the story of the gospel. And yet, we're not done. And yet, there's more. Because Zephaniah goes even further with this season of joy and expectation. Because he doesn't just tell us why we shouldn't sing. He doesn't just tell us why we should sing. But he also tells us why the Lord sings. In verse 17, we see the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one to save. And he will rejoice over you with gladness. Christ has removed our sin and our shame, and he sings. He rejoices. He is happy because we are new creations in Christ. Some of us have a hard time understanding this, right? Maybe we think of God as our Father who is very hard and strict-handed. Maybe we think that, you know, God 
now has to save us because Jesus died on the cross. But maybe he really doesn't want to. But the end of the story in Zephaniah isn't that God just doesn't save you because he has to. But we have a God that delights in us. Who sings over us. Who rejoices over you and rejoices over me because we are in Christ. Makes me think of the the three parables in Luke chapter 15. Of the shepherd who left the 99 sheep to find the one and says that there is more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who have no repentance. Or the story of the woman who lost her coin, and when the coin was found, said, Just so I'll tell you the joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then we have the eloquent parable of the prodigal son. Of a father who sees a son coming from the distance and runs to him and kisses him and celebrates his return and gives him everything that he has because he lavishes his love upon his son. And this is what our God does to us. He delights in us. He sings over us. This is what happens when we come to the Lord's Supper. It's as if we can come in this frantic need of explaining ourselves, trying to explain away everything we have ever done, and God just hugs us. And it says his love quiets us because we're in the arms of of a loving Father who rejoices over us. And yet there's still work to be done. As I said, the day of the Lord only came partially at the cross. In this Advent season, we also wait for this second great day, the second Advent of our Lord. The day of the Lord will bring forth a terrible judgment for those who are not found in Christ. But yet for God's people, as we read in Revelation 21, when he comes and brings the new heavens and the new earth, he will adorn us like a husband adorns a bride. I don't know if you heard it, but when he searched out, in Zephaniah, when he searches out Israel, When he searches out Judah, he's going to use a lamp to find them. And John uses that same imagery at the end of chapter 21. And he says, the Lord will be the lamp. We will need no sun because Christ, Yahweh, our King, is in our midst. And this is why we rejoice. This is why we have a great hope. This is why we are happy and we sing. Because the Lord is in our midst and he rejoices over us. Because what he has done in Christ. This song, We Will Feast in the House of Zion, is one of my favorite songs, if you have not already understood that by the number of times that we sing it. But the reason I love this song 
is because this song teaches us of this expectation. In Zephaniah chapter 1, God speaks of his great judgment of how he will destroy the earth, and it sounds very much like the flood. Yet, in this song, we sing that we will not be consumed by the flood, we will not be burned by the fire, but we will feast in Zion, because the Lord sings over us. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, renew in us a hope to wait faithfully upon the Lord. And on that great day, may we be found in jubilant song and expectation because Christ will be returning for his bride. Amen.